Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Shirley Sykes. It's January 20th, 2022. So do you remember where you were one year ago today, what you were doing, Tim Miller? Do you remember um, that? I was crying. I no. was crying, I think, watching happy that tears, orange, happy. A- happy tears. I'm kind of like I'm crying this morning after watching Nikola Jokic. I was up late last night watching Nikola Jokic, just beautiful 49-point triple-double game-winning pass, uh, which has has me, you know, a little cloudy this morning, but I'm I'm ready for this. And and it was a similar type of happy tears, but even more flowing last year, you know, watching that butterscotch bronzered just piece of garbage have to fly away i was just watching him fly away and then i came right here to the same room i'm in to to talk about it with you on the podcast it was a it's kind of an emotional podcast as i recall maybe i should have re-listened to it there was there was a lot of drinking during the podcast (laughs) remember i I actually wore a tuxedo on the podcast on the for a zoom call but so this seems like a long 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 time ago it does it's only been a year a lot of broken, you know, you know, hopes and dreams and all of it. But, but I want to cling to that image. I actually w- went back and I was looking at my, you know, the pictures that I took and some of the images. And, and it, it doesn't get old seeing him, this little man, walking out of the White House to get into the helicopter. You know, the leaving the White House. I, I wanted to watch it on the loop. So for people who say, well, yeah, buyer's remorse about Joe Biden. Uh, you know, I've been disappointed by a lot of things, but no, absolutely not. Not even a scintilla because Donald Trump had to do that walk of shame. You know, didn't go to the inauguration. I mean, as petulant as possible. You know, remember to give that weird rambling speech at the airport. Have a nice life, people. And then he gets a child. Yeah, honestly, it's one of the no buyer's remorse. Are you kidding me? It was one of the five happiest days of my life. I'm not going to rank them. Every time I rank the happiest days of my life, my husband gets mad about where yeah. he where he falls on the list. But uh, it's it was out there one of the five happiest days of my life, and no. and such a child. And he could have done, you know, like no dignity. I always do look back in these images. You get these assholes, anti anti Trump assholes on Twitter who are like, well, you know, the Democrat. I'm sure we'll get into this about the press yeah. conference too. The Democrats tried to delegitimize the thing, and I, I'm always like, here's the no. picture of Obama sucking it up. And sitting down next to Donald fucking Trump uh, two days after he won in the White House. Like, here's the picture of all the staff looking like they want to cry and, and you know, being sad, watching Donald Trump come to the White House. We don't have those pictures because what we got to watch was the just man baby just, you know, going home to play with his toys, shuffling out of the White House with his diaper on and, and flying back to Mar-a-Lago because he just didn't have the you know, cojones to show up, to, to shake his hand, yeah. shake the Which everybody, else, you know, yeah, you think about it, you know, it's maybe we, up until then, we had taken it for granted. Uh, you know, Herbert yeah, Hoover seriously. sitting there next to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That must have been a lot of fun, right? <laughs> seriously. You know, Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower did not get along, trust me. Uh, I mean, these these moments where, you know, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, right? They were there. Oh, I got still it, alive. Yeah. yeah. You can imagine, I mean, just you know, think about it. Al Gore sitting there with George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush sitting there with Bill Clinton, this snot-nosed kid from Arkansas who had just defeated him, you know, one-term president. And there he was sitting there. Not only did he suck it up and sit there, but he wrote that really gracious letter on the way out, which, of course, is it's utterly impossible to imagine Trump doing it. And, and maybe we don't care about that anymore. 
Well, I mean, again, Richard Nixon sitting with John F. Kennedy and, and there's, there is a uh, Donald Trump heading off by himself. Okay. So this goes, thank you for making me think about this. I'd forgotten. I kind of, I had, I'd forgotten about my joy of that morning and I'm, no. I'm on a little high now, right now I'm on a cloud. Just sort of remember. Well, I'm going to bring you enjoy this way you can. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I just figured we'd back into this because, uh, so, um, I, I have a number of favorite stories this, this morning, um, including I'm, I've been anxiously waiting for the reaction from, from Mar-a-Lago to the Supreme court's, uh, spanking of schlonging. Donald Trump. Yeah. Schlonging saying, yeah, uh, you do not have, uh, the right to, uh, we're, we're not going to go along with your attempt to obstruct the investigation into your behavior on January 6th, seven to one, only Clarence Thomas asterisk there um because you know the word recusal is going to come up and up uh clarence mm-hmm. thomas a uh, husband of Ginny thomas uh pro coup i mean not only pro coup but as i as i pointed out earlier Water. this week she'd signed a letter uh just in the last month uh saying that uh adam kinzinger and liz cheney should be expelled from the house gop conference because they're serving on the committee and so look i i do think you ought to give a lot of leeway to what spouses do right your your spouse does not speak for you you should not be held accountable on the other hand you know her name is very likely to show up in some of these documents in some of oh, this yes. testimony and so there's clarence thomas going up i think we got to cover it up absolutely not no i don't think we should turn it over if that is not a conflict of interest what the fuck is really you know so Anyway, you know the gnashing of teeth because of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and even Amy Coney Barrett. And all of them said, yeah, we're not going to be part of the cover-up. We may go along with you on on abortion, a variety of other stuff, uh, you know, whatever, you know, mandates. But on this, no, we don't even want to get close to it. I yeah, I'll say, I don't. It, it, is, it is joyful because he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He just no, he really he, still, he he still never didn't will. get it. And, exp- and it has his, his, his loyalty expectation that is deformed and privileged and you know based on you know his childhood and you know the deal and the, the deals that he always screwed people over on as a real estate man he doesn't get it and i you know look amy coney barrett uh, would not have been my first choice uh for a supreme court justice and and brett kavanaugh isn't really my cup of tea but um and the gorsuch seat was basically stolen so uh i wouldn't have said that originally but it was uh you know if you balance gorsuch and coney barrett so i i have my problems with them but but he didn't understand for the start that he was not you know the the, the deal that he had cut the deal with the devil you know between leah leonard leo and the federalist society and trump uh, you know that they that the Republican establishment would go full throat for him as long as he signed off on these judges. I, he still thought that these judges were going to be on the team, he did. like wearing right. a jersey. Yeah. Like he didn't understand that all these people did have pre-existing actual principles and beliefs, and even if you disagree with some of their principles and beliefs. And you know, I we we I think I correctly were worried. Um, you know, when he was running that he would, you know, appoint Judge Jeanine or whatever to the Supreme Court. Um, and Next time you know, he, yeah, he yeah. had to cut that deal because, you know, he, 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 he wanted to demonstrate that he was, you know, pro-life or whatever and make sure he could get the, the social conservatives on board during the primary. Next time around, I think he has learned his lesson on that point for sure. Um, yeah, he's got to be whether, Yeah, the, the Senate would let him get away with it, which of course they probably w- would. Okay, so here's my, my second favorite story of the day. Not the most important story, but I just find it highly entertaining. This is from Politico Playbook, Trump's big lie of a gift. 
Every House Republican, every single one of them, received a present Wednesday from Donald Trump's outside group, Save America. They handed out copies of, are you ready for this? Molly Hemingway's conspiratorial book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Election, along with a signed note from the former president. So here's, here's Donald Trump flogging Molly Hemingway's book, you know, to push the big lie. Um, and, he, and he writes on the note, Republican leadership should never have certified the election on January 6th. <sighs> Still there. And now Democrats will never stop their assault on America, Trump writes. Uh, I hope you find this book informative and encouraging in your battle for the heart of our nation. Uh, playbook notes, uh, political playbook notes. Well, Kevin McCarthy uh, led more than 100 House Republicans in objecting to the election that day. The GOP leader has been trying to pivot away from 2020, right, and focus on Biden ahead of the midterms. But as a House GOP aide who tipped us off said, Trump's gift is the latest sign that the leader of the party does not want that and expects House Republicans to fall in line. It just shows how Trump is continuing to pressure members and Republicans to embrace the big lie, the person said. So first of all, Molly Hemingway must be so proud since she's become Serenity a total now. show. Well, okay. And, you know, and she she actually, okay, yeah, this is, now I'm going to go down a, a rabbit right, hole. I'm ready. Because you say, I'm here from Milwaukee, and we were the home of the Bradley Foundation, which used to be one of the real pillars of the intellectual conservative movement here, funded you know, almost every single conservative thinker, book, think tank, university, I mean, you name it. And I have a prediction. I don't know what's happened to the Bradley Foundation, but I bet it's been degraded and become a MAGA well, cesspool. Let me, well, let me tell you how, how, how bad it's become a MAGA cesspool. OK, and, and I, I need to I mean, you know, in quasi full disclosure, my wife used to work there. Um, I had close ties with them. Um, I knew a lot of the folks uh, was really good friends with the uh, former presidents of it. But it has become a mega cesspool. And here's the measure of it. Every year they hang out, they hand out the so-called Bradley Prize, which is this, uh, you know, big sort of uh, crystal lion with a big freak load of money that goes with it. And it used to be people like George Will who would win that this year. Are you ready? They gave it to Molly Hemingway. I mean, this is okay. I'm, I'm, I'm now. Mm. Are you working on the serenity here? I'm, tr I'm breathing. This is a two hundred fifty thousand dollar prize, and it used to be to the most important, thoughtful conservatives in the country, and they gave it to Molly Hemingway, who is such an embarrassing shill that Trump is using her books to send out telling Congress that they shouldn't have certified January 6th. So this tells you a lot about how how deep in the cesspool, I mean, not only are they deep in the cesspool, I mean, they're stirring the, the, the cesspool. You know, Cleta Mitchell was a member of the board of the Bradley Foundation. I don't know whether she still is. Remember, she was the attorney who actually yeah. was on that on the call trying to overturn the Georgia election. So anyway, well, I'm there's just doing my Ujjayi breaths over here, Charlie. I, I was, it is a little bit confusing. You know, I, I do think that I, I recalled that Liz Cheney lost her role in leadership because she just couldn't move on. She wouldn't move, move on. <laughs> couldn't move on. Um, so, it, is, it is disturbing that I just, it's just worth mentioning, like, you know, and just driving home this point, uh, because I, I do think since, you know, and, and we will have as Kinzinger, uh, you know, uh, previewed on this very podcast. If, if you uh, will, new dad, congratulations, new dad, yeah. congrats, Adam, uh, that there will be some primetime hearings and there will be other news opportunities. Uh, but I do think that there that that for people who aren't following this closely, like there is this underbelly of, of you know, 
of continuing on the 2020 insurrection um, uh, that is ongoing and that is just not getting the attention that what's happening sensibly, you know, in the White House and people's day to day lives, like what the urgent matters, right? Like the things that are affecting people today are getting more attention. And so, you know, these little tidbits happen, you know, you see that the former president's sending a book to everybody in the House, you know, reminding them to stay in line and, and say that the 2020 election is rigged. He's holding this rally in Arizona, you know, where, you know, the My Pillow man who had the most crazy insurrection conspiracies and who met with the White House and told them to you know, call the National Guard in, uh, you know, he's speaking. He's, you know, this is still a man in good standing. He's speaking in, in the lead up to Trump's speech. All of the the leading polling candidate for Senate and, and governor is there, right? Like this stuff is all still happening and ongoing. It just, because we don't have an election right now, and because I think a lot of people are wish casting that maybe Trump will like keel over or get arrested or whatever, that we won't ever have to deal with this. But but uh, it's very much a present thing, not a past thing. And the, the book is just an, it's just a little example, but it's just one more data point in that regard. No, it, it is. And I, I would urge people, by the way, to uh, read uh, Amanda Carpenter's piece in The Bulwark today. She breaks down the the six main the different ways in which Trump tried to overturn the election. I mean, at, at a certain point, you almost need a chart. Uh, all of the things that are going on. Okay, so let's take a deep breath here. Um, it is w- one year, and Joe Biden does the quote-unquote reset press conference. Um, as I wrote this morning, the optics weren't great because, I mean, it is bracketed by dismal polling, uh, intraparty squabbling, and this historic failure on voting rights. I, I, I continue to be baffled by the the Democratic strategy in the Senate which um, succeeded, I think, primarily in exposing really bitter divisions inside the, the party, uh, rather than amplifying the fact that the uh, Republicans are blockading voting rights. Uh, and they and so the president comes out, uh, talks about his first year, and the next news cycle is, you know, his, his agenda crashes and burns in the Senate. It's great. And then there's these polls out showing, well, I mean, they're just, they're just not good. So before I go into the slough of negativity and despond, Tim, your thoughts, because I think you had a more positive take on the press conference than I did. Yeah, well, on the press conference. So I, I guess I, I just want to bracket my comments by saying I I agree. And, and we've been saying on this podcast and on others that I've been concerned about some of the president's strategic moves, the Democratic Party's strategic moves. But people haven't read Sarah Longwell's article yesterday talking about the strategic pivot Democrats need to make to deal with their political reality. They should read it. I, 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 this is not a Pollyannish comment about the Democrats' current political uh, position, which is uh, maybe not dire, but but not good. The press conference itself, though, I thought it was pretty good. I, I don't. So here's my content. I need to give you a little context mm. to this. I couldn't. I couldn't watch it yesterday in 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 real time. Um, I was running out and about. I had some toddler parenting, you know, to attend to, and so I'm watching it on Twitter, right? And I'm seeing everybody, you know, you know, all the Sturman drawing about his Ukraine comment. All the everybody's upset about his elections comment. You know, people are calling, saying he's doddering. Uh, you know, uh, I have, I found, you know, I suffered through right wing Twitter. Uh, they had all of these, you know, performative things that they were upset about at the press conference, and I was like, man, jeez, uh, jeez, Biden mustn't have really, he mustn't have really performed. Um, but I knew it was coming on the podcast, so it's like I can't, I can't judge this based on Twitter. So after 
watching Nikola Jokic <laughs> late at night. I just I sat silently in my room and I watched him on 1.75 speed on the YouTube. So maybe I just want to say that might, I might be giving him a curve. He might sound more doddering when he's at, when he's in real time. I was listening to him on 1.75, and I, I powered through the whole two hours. And I I thought he was really good. I, he he was he was generally you optimistic. Just always a couple speed of, him up like that. Yeah, a couple but of the lists. Could only he could be electronically enhanced that way. We could put him on chipmunks mode, yeah. then he'd be good. Okay, uh, a couple uh, things I just wrote down. I said on this podcast oh, probably two or three months ago that that they need to pivot and start focusing on inflation and stop focusing so much on you know their big ticket spending items. He did that. He even mentioned deficit reduction. You know, during this during this press conference yesterday, he he in his in both his his lead up remarks and his response to the questions, he kept coming back to how they're trying to deal with inflation. I think he's done a good job of making the point that BBB it might not be addressing grocery store inflation, but prescription drugs, you know, childcare, elder care. I thought I thought at least they have t- they have internalized that this is a message that they have to deal with. Um, you know, because they don't it's not like they have a magic end inflation wand. You know, the best thing they can do is is talk about the levers they can do to pull it. He talked about Jerome Powell. Uh, I, I thought that he was pretty good on schools. Uh, you know, he talked about how all the money that they've given the schools and how some of them aren't using it very wisely. I was kind of a dig at the teachers union, I thought. Could have been a little more direct. But, um, you know, he, yeah. he kept reiterating that he wanted to keep that he wanted schools to be open. Uh, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I just thought he wanted to mention it. Uh, he was good. On, on actually, they, I think that they, they have settled on an anti-Republican message that they're driving in addition to the Trump stuff because Trump alone isn't good enough, as we saw in Virginia. And it's, what do these guys want to do? They have no plan either. Yeah, he kept repeating that. He kept coming back to you know this message, which is, cor- which is correct. Republicans are offering nothing. They're just criticizing uh, Biden and not wanting to come to the table. I thought as much was good enough. And by the way, McConnell underlined that because they asked him a little bit later, so what is your agenda? And he goes, hey, that's a great question, but you'll have to wait until we get back in control or something like, wait, seriously, that that's your answer that we're not, (laughs) we don't have it. And you have to like put us in power and then we will tell you what it's going to be because you know what it's going to be. It's just going to be obstruction. (laughs) It's just like, he doesn't even think about Mitch McConnell is he doesn't even bullshit about it. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, we're just going to block everything. So next question, like, I mean, what part of everything don't you get all you know so so yeah i I thought i thought that's you know is that a good enough is a message going into november probably not we can talk about that but at least it's something you know he's starting to define the opposite sign which he's not done a particularly good job of and uh, you know little things i thought he's tough on china on versus a couple questions he got some crazy he took crazy questions from like not just fox but like newsmax and some other troll guy you asked him about hunter biden and and he kept his cool uh, he answered those questions and, and he was up there for two hours, which, you know, I, I don't want to make a big deal out of that, but it's not nothing. OK, it's, well, it's no, not right. I'd like to see some of these other people, go, you know, who are, you know, calling him doddering, take two hours worth of questions from assholes and see how they do. So I thought overall he was good on the two items that, <laughs> that people keep coming back to. Now, communication is a big part of the job, right? So so you need to have be a clear communicator uh, if you're the president. And if you can't be a clear communicator, you deserve to be criticized. So I'm fine with him being criticized. But. What was going around on Twitter was very much not what he said on either of those points, right? I, I, on on the 2022 legitimacy election point, he was trying to make the point about the count. He kept trying to say, like, well, how do we know if the Republicans are going to monkey with the count? And and uh, and mm-hmm. I think he got frustrated with Wegman and, and Saki cleared that up today. Here's what he said on Ukraine. I wrote this down. 
he's never seen sanctions like the one I promise will be imposed if he moves, number one. The, the idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I want to be clear with you. Serious imposition of sanctions, devastating impact on Russia if there's Russian forces crossing the border killing Ukrainians. If there's Russian forces crossing the border killing Ukrainians, devastating sanctions. I, I, okay, so look, I'm not Shekateri or our, you know, uh, any of our, you know, uh, esteemed foreign policy greats, you know, who've gotten everything wrong over the past 30 years. So uh, maybe they didn't like the specific wording that he used on that. Uh, the minor incursion thing, I, I guess, obviously, Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainians didn't like it. So it couldn't have been good. But I don't know. I read that. I, and I, it's I, like, to I, me, it says if, 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 if Putin sends troops over, we're going to fuck them up. That's what I, I That's what I, I read. I, I admire your heroic effort there. Okay. I, I, I stand in awe of that. No, I, I'll be able to say, see, that is what I wish he would have said and then stopped. Right. Instead, sure. you have the, well, you know, as long as it's a minor incursion, which whatever that means. <laughs> it's a weird well, phrase. I mean, there, there are gaffes, you know, then there are gaffes that are just, you know, whatever, you know, maybe telling too much truth in Michael Kinsley definition of a gaff or, or just, you know, you know, mixing up some, some words. And then there are the gaffes that might actually lead to war gaffes that might actually lead to uh, miscalculation, um, send the wrong signal. And by the way, it's not just Twitter. It's the Ukrainians who are going, what yeah. the fuck did he just say? He just gave a green light. Fred Kaplan, you know, wrote about this. Um, you know, I mean, this again, Biden suggesting if Putin mounts a minor incursion, then maybe NATO might not be so united. And, and, and Fred Kaplan writes, uh, you know, so so was Biden saying that Russia might not incur severe costs and significant harm if Putin mounts merely a whatever a minor incursion is? And what is a minor incursion? Just another salami slice of eastern Ukraine beyond Russia's 2014 minor incursion into Donbass province and it's that if you pronounce it that way and the annexation of crimea just a helicopter landing in the capital just a few airstrikes and of course we had the immediate white house cleanup you know on on aisle 48 here you know and you know jen Psaki put you know out a statement you know saying he's been clear with with you know the russian president you know there if there's a renewed invasion this is a pr flag tick by the way anytime your boss fucks up and is unclear you always have to say we've always been clear in the cleanest and it's not it was not clear and it was an own was an own goal but it's one of those things where with all of his experience um it was i'm sorry just kind of breathtaking that he would have wandered off into that because this was exactly the moment for complete clarity and not throwing into now if you do something really big like I don't know, maybe a minor incursion you know but, but if it's really big yeah. you might be in trouble uh minor incursion uh, i'll get back to you on i said you don't say that can I tell you what I think he was thinking? Uh, and I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't want yeah. to make this seem like I'm saying this was perfectly done. I, I, what what, I'll, what I'm, my point I was trying to make is I think the rest yeah. of the press conference was good. Yeah. And I think on these two points, uh, he, he just mangled what he's trying to say, um, which is different than the, the you know, I think a lot of the criticism that I saw, which, which you know, made it seem like this was intentional. I, I, I think what's going on in his head is Syria. And I think that the Obama red line, 
you know, is is something that sticks with them. And, you know, he followed up right after the incursion comment, you know, which I didn't write this down, but some kind of line saying, you know, if you're the big power, you know, you can't bluff, right? You have to, you have to back up what you say. And I think that he was trying to caveat because he doesn't want to seem like, oh, I'm guaranteeing we're going to take a big action. And then if something little happens and I don't take anything, then you're going to say I was, you know, I, I think that's what's going through his head. He, he, he worded it poorly. Um, but, I, but he did come back. I just want to reiterate this because it was after the minor incursion comment, they followed up and it was after that is when he came back and he said that, that, you know, if there's Russian forces crossing the border, killing Ukrainians, there'll be devastating impact. So yeah, that would, you know, that to would me, that's minor. what he said after that would not be my, right. That would not be better. So I guess his point is like, okay, uh, there are, there are a whole suite of things Russia could do in Ukraine that is short of, you know, killing somebody and crossing the border right and so it's you know uh, who the hell knows what all okay. those things so that, are right and i think that's what he was trying to say in his head like, like you know if russia you know does a little side whatever like i, I don't want to be hamstrung into the, the most severe pushback on russia you know if they're just monkeying around okay so that's number one let's okay. let's talk about the the other one where he's asked about the legitimacy of the midterm. Let's, we have some of the audio of that. Let's okay. just play. Speaking of voting rights legislation, if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. Well, okay. Um, and he's, I'm, I'm not going to say it's going to be legit when he was asked about the possibility of fraud. The prospect of an illegitimate election is in direct proportion to us being able to get these reforms passed. Look, you know, Josh Jordan tweeted out, look, I was against Trump preemptively claiming the election would be illegitimate if he lost. And I'm against Biden saying that 2022 could be illegitimate if he doesn't get his election bills passed, which he's not going to. Until we have evidence of illegitimate elections, these are dangerous accusations. Here's my concern. And, you know, we talk about Twitter. The number of people out there going, he's absolutely right, tells me that we are really in danger of going into this doom loop in which everybody questions everything, that both sides now have armed themselves with reasons not to respect the outcome of the election. We know the Republicans will come up with any bullshit lie out there, but the Democrats are now convincing themselves that the election, if they lose, it will be illegitimate because um, the Republicans suppressed the vote and, and, and they cheated. And so we are in this kind of doom loop right now where everybody is sort of pre-positioned for illegitimacy. And that's why that wasn't just a gaffe. I think that felt like a preview of the world that we're going to be living in for the next few years. I think that's a very legitimate concern. And um, I, I think that this is, yeah, again, to my to my point, you know, in my defense of the press conference rant, I do think that he was talking about the count, okay, now, and uh, not, you know, the, oh, you know, if there's suppression or whatever. But he he kind of, he did, that was a short, yeah. he did, okay, yeah. I, I think so. Regard if he, if he doesn't, though, this needs to be an issue that you are particularly sensitive to the exact language that you're losing, you, using, because of what happened in January. Uh, and because of this, this point that you said, uh, future people not accepting elections, I, I'm very, you know, th I think there's good reason to be very concerned about this. Uh, I, I do think that this is an area where there is a little bit of 
irrationality that is consuming folks on the left. Uh, you know, sometimes I get these questions and, uh, you, you know, about the dire state of voting rights. And it's, again, I, what Republicans are doing in the states is not good. It also hasn't demonstrated to work yet. You know, uh, and and so yet is a key word. We'll see. Uh, you know, maybe in 2022, some of these red states, there will be real suppression. In 2020, it didn't work at all, right? Uh, record turnout. Uh, there are plenty of op- opportunities to, to vote, um, you know, and limiting the number of early days. Again, not, that's not what I'm for, but uh, that's not, you know. That's not that to make an election illegitimate. I for for a long time we had elections that that had that had very few opportunities to vote earlier absentee. So, um, anyway, point being, he needs to be precise in his language about this. I'm concerned about the left not accepting elections. Um, I, I don't want to create an equivalence, though, because I, I think that what Republicans are doing in the states is terrible. I think there is legitimate concern about secretaries of state um, at, at, and other officials uh, in red states, you know, learning from Trump and trying to screw with the count. I, I think that's a perfectly appropriate red flag to put up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that's I think the he's, just got, this he's is, just got to watch what, what he says. This is the really important distinction here, because I think that is the real threat. So when I say there's an existential threat to democracy, I am talking about January 6th and the entire plot to overthrow that election. The installation of secretaries of states who might throw out vast numbers of votes, um, legislatures that feel empowered to ignore the popular vote. These are fundamental dangers. None of the bills that were voted on yesterday, neither of the bills that were voted on yesterday actually dealt with that. See, this is the disconnect here, that the problem is there's a problem of casting the votes, access to the vote, and then there's the problem of counting the votes. The real problem, the existential problem, is in the counting of the votes. The casting of the votes, look, I understand the people in Georgia who are upset about the elimination of the drop boxes. I understand why they are concerned about really long lines to vote in Fulton County. I get this, okay? But these are not drop boxes are not an existential threat to democracy. You know, 15 days of early voting as opposed to 10 days of early voting is not an existential issue uh, for democracy. The yeah. overthrowing of the election. It's a bad policy, And, and right. can I also point out about the Voting Rights Act? And look, I, I've said before, I would have voted for the John Lewis Act. I wouldn't have voted for H.R. 1 because they pack all kinds of other extraneous stuff in it. But I would have voted for it. But people do need to be reminded that we still have a Voting Rights Act. What the Supreme Court threw out, they gutted a portion of the Voting Rights Act which required you know, pre-clearance of any major changes in certain Southern states, okay? But it is still illegal, unconstitutional, to discriminate on the basis of race. If any state takes a, a step that, uh, that, that endangers the votes of Americans, particularly of minorities, there is still um, a federal law that bans that. There are still litigation. You can still sue. You can still go and enforce it. So the the loss of preclearance is a problem, but it does not completely eliminate the voting right. And I guess part of it is this, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, the disconnect between the rhetoric and the actual reality, because I had to spend some time yesterday going, okay, specifically, what are we talking about here? What am I missing? 
you know, is it is it the you know that you can't hand out water to people in line? Well, that's just kind of petty. What's going on in Texas? They're throwing out some votes. But the reality is that by any measure, at least you tell me if I'm wrong about this, it seems like it's easier to vote pretty much everywhere in the country, easier to vote than it was in, say, 2008 when Barack Obama was first elected president. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I'd have to go look at two. I no, think certainly no. that's true if you if you said 1988, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, and so I think that's sort of the point, right? In a, in a post Voting Rights Act world, there was still a lot, uh, you know, significantly more restrictive voting rules, you know, in the past quarter century than there is now. I, I think that's true. I, you know, obviously they're trying to roll back certain things. I don't agree with that. I think Democrats should particularly be worried about expanding them in purple states where they have control, places like Michigan right now. But yeah, I, I, I don't think that's right. Mm. I, I think that the the rhetoric on this is is overheated. There's good reason after what happened on January 6th to be upset, but then to sort of conflate that with all of these other items about voting, mm. there are legitimate reasons to, to want to disagree with, you know, I, I, to, to, to be honest, I had long held the view that that we had too long early voting period. Things can happen in elections at the end of time. And my position had always been, uh, you know, election day should be a holiday. You know, everybody should be able to, you know, get off work and uh, and go vote on Election Day. And, you know, if your boss doesn't let you, you should be able to sue them. Right. Like Election Day should be a holiday. And and that would solve. Right. So I think that there are good faith disagreements. I, now, I don't think what the Republicans are doing in a lot of these states is good faith. I think it's bad faith no, it's based bad on faith. the 2020. But, right. but, uh, but OK, their intentions being bad. Uh, it doesn't change the reality that you just laid out of the fact that these changes are are rolling back people's access to voting to you know what what it was more like 20 years ago which which again i I just want to keep reiterating i do not support but that is different than not having a free and fair election and that is why try this on for size like the biden message should be we will have free and fair elections i will make sure we have free and fair elections and and all and all the republicans attempts to try to undermine that you know must be rebuked and we with will the full stop force them. of law. Yes. Yeah. With the full force of law, period. And and so you attack them still, but but reassure people. Well, exactly. I mean, there are still tools and the Department of Justice can sue like they are in in Texas. OK, so Governor Yunkin in Virginia, my friend, uh, based on the Twitters, you've been saying some things that are a little uh, controversial. <laughs> Boy, I, you know, I, 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 I need to catch up on this. I don't think that this is controversial, actually, Charlie. Okay, um, right. I, well, I do. I do. I think it's controversial in the sense that some people are upset. But I, I, here's what I'm concerned about, and I just want to back up a little bit before I get into my controversial, you know, defense of of something that Glenn Youngkin did, which I'm sure is not very popular among uh, my mm-hmm. my new friends. Mm-hmm. The Republicans, in some ways, this parallels this voting rights discussion. The Republicans' actions on COVID have been absolutely unconscionable. And I sent this tweet yesterday. I don't know if you've seen it about the Utah Senate president. You know, this asshole who's this Republican Senate president in Utah who tested positive for COVID, shows up to work, doesn't wear a mask, you know, first lies about the fact that he tested positive for COVID, then have to test later has to admit that he did test positive twice and he still showed up. Uh, I mean, this is just a microcosm of Republicans' behavior across the country, you know, appeasing the anti-vaxxers, going, you know, um, in some cases, DeSantis' case, hiring an anti-vax, you know, uh, uh, a certain general in the state. I I mean, their behavior has been horrible. And yet somehow, I I sense, you know, talking to my non-political friends, you know, looking at the data, the, the, the Democrats are letting Republicans take the middle position on on 
on a lot of COVID things, particularly as it relates to schools and particularly as it relates to, you know, trying to transition back towards having a path to transition back towards some kind of normality, not not pre-COVID normality, but some kind of normality. And and I, and I think that the Democrats are making a big mistake here. Like they should be turning Republicans into the crazy ones because they are crazy and they're acting crazy. And yet, because of the behavior in schools, I, I really think that they're opening them selves up to being the ones that people are upset at. And this prime example is this mask fight among kids in schools. And 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 I just I want to be clear. I think that when people are inside in close quarters, they should be wearing a mask, right? And and given right now what's happening with Omicron and 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 vulnerable communities. I, I totally agree with that. But but this the the treatment of the kids in the schools right now is a little crazy, I think. I, you know, you know, having to have separate lunches uh, masking, permanent masking all the time, masking eight hours a day. And I, I mentioned this on the Next Level podcast. So if you if you already heard this, you can fast forward 30 seconds. Uh, if you haven't heard it, sign up for Bulwark Plus. Um, but you see these pictures of the grownups, you know, going to sporting events. Nobody's wearing masks. Everybody's inside. Everybody's partying. Everybody's having a good time. Democrats and Republicans, by the way. This isn't just Republicans. And then you contrast that with the pictures of the kids walking through the schools, you know, like they're in a prison, uh, having to mask. I, it, 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 I, I get that, you know, wearing a mask isn't that big of a sacrifice, but man, like these kids, they're at the lowest risk of anybody of COVID and we're making them wear masks eight hours a day. Uh, you know, it's tough. I, you know, my kid it's is tough. four. It's fine. It's fine. She's fine. But like, yeah. but like you're learning your phonics, right? Not seeing people's mouths does matter, right? Like if you're learning how to read, not being able to read the lips of your teacher, like that does matter. It's harder to learn new words. It's harder to understand what's being said. Uh, and I just, I, I do feel like it's, it's a, it's the Democrats are, are opening themselves up to a major criticism by saying that, you know, schools, uh, and I thought Biden did a good job saying schools should be open, but but at the local level, sometimes he, he gets stuck having to respond to local actions. At the local level, so some of these schools are closing, these kids are wearing masks, and, uh, you know, and then you've got Republican candidates saying, man, if a parent says the kid doesn't want to wear a mask, they should. I think that's a winning political message for the Republicans and, and, and for Youngkin right now. And unfortunately the irresponsible actors are starting to encroach into the big middle on this issue that is very important to people's day-to-day lives. It's tangible. There are people who don't want, you know, to have to stay home and, and skip work for a day to take care of their kids, you know, and, and that's different and, and, from democracy, it, it, right? That's intangible. Exactly. There are, there are two different categories of like things that people think about in theory and then really tangible, right. um, you know, gas prices, is really tangible, you know, the price of chicken, really tangible, whether your kid has to wear a mask all day, whether your kid gets to go to school. So as I'm listening to this discussion about, about the masking, I, I, I feel the anger rising in me once again about the anti-vaxxers, the people who have been so reckless, the people who have given out disinformation. And I guess that's where you're going, is that the pivot on this is to say, look, children should be in school. They should not have to wear masks. And the reason that we, we are even having this discussion is because there has been so much reckless disinformation about the vaccine. The vaccines work. We need to stop having Republican governors lying about this. 
um, undermining our efforts to do the healthy thing. The thing that makes it is so irrational about the education debate is the fact, and you know this, every parent knows this, there are so many immunizations that you have to have. There are so many shots. In the state of Florida, it takes up an entire page of the website. Yes. All of the shots you have to have, even to take your child to daycare. So why do we suddenly have this carve out and say, yes, but absolutely not this one vaccine that may determine whether or not we have school at all. This is the bullshit. So I do think they need to go on offense about the vaccines as opposed to getting bogged down in this other thing. The only reason we're talking about masks is because you assholes are not vaccinating. Yes. And by the no. way, if there are certain times like, look, I don't, you know, they're high risk things. Uh, you know, we're having a school function. Everybody's, you know, we're singing, you know, Christian Catholic schools like we're having mass. Right. Uh, maybe people should have their masks on. Right. Like I, I there are reasonable actions. If, if you're within a certain, you know, if you tested positive and you know, then you come back a few days later, you the kids. Right. Like there, there are all of these rational, reasonable things that we can do, you know, no, and the, and that turns the Republicans into the, the ones that are extreme because they are right. Like you guys are risking people's lives. Like the answer is not, oh, laissez-faire, live and let die, you know, whatever, you know, versus like COVID zero, right? Like, like there's this question of how do we transition out of it and, and who can take the big middle? And, and I think that, that if the Democrats, uh, you know, like chose to, they could do that, but there needs to be a little leadership and a little yeah. bit of risk, you know, and willing to say, Hey, you know, we, we need to let people who have done the right thing, who've gotten vaccinated, um, you know, have a little bit of leeway to be responsible, but also reasonable. And, um, and I, and I, and I think it's unreasonable to, you know, demand that six year olds who are vaccinated, who are at very low risk, you know, have, you know, who are trying to learn how to read have to exactly. have to have their mask on eight hours a day while grownups don't. No, I, 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 I completely agree. So, all right. So you tweeted out 13 hours ago. Okay. I thought I a lot of tweets. I, I know, I know, but, but this was, this was, this was thought provoking. Yeah. Thanks. You asked an interesting question. And I think it's legitimate because people are saying, boy, you know, this has been a really a tough year for Joe Biden. It's been a terrible year for Joe Biden, which it has been. But then you asked a thought exercise on the Biden one year mark. What is the best calendar year for a president in the post 9-11 Internet era? You got 20 to choose from. Hmm. It's tough, isn't it? Everybody's well, thinking about that. There, for a there, 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 there is a correct answer, but um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing that your point was as you go through it, you realize there has not been since, you know, really in this in this century, there hasn't been really a good year for a president. They've been like various shades of shitty, right? Yeah. Okay, shitty, but you you survived it. But when was the last time a president had a really good year? There I think is that, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's the right. I probably should have started at 2003, but um, rather than 2002, because yeah. 2002 is probably the right answer. Uh, that with is Bush. the right answer. Uh, yes. No, so, uh, 2011. <laughs> I think I think you can make a pretty decent case yeah. for 2011. Uh, you, we killed Osama bin Laden and got out of Iraq, um, but he didn't do a whole lot. The Republicans have just taken over the House, so there wasn't a lot of legislative achievement that year. But uh, 2011 oh, would be my runner-up. Ah, see, I don't know. I that was if 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 you're the president, you've just lost control of Congress. Right. You have the Tea Party that is raging. Uh, all bipartisan negotiation has so. stopped. I remember the economy being so crappy that by the end of the year, everyone, <laughs> one, one prominent Republican was saying, you know, if Republicans can't beat Obama next year, they ought to get out of this business because things are going so badly about all was of that this. Was that Sarley Kikes? 
Uh, no, it wasn't. It was, it was, it was, it was some somebody. No, somebody else. Um, I, I I wish I would have said that, even though it would have been wrong. But uh, so you agree with me, because I actually spent some time on this, and I came up with two thousand and two. Uh, when you think about the last, you know, really strong year for a president, I mean George yeah. W. Bush is going to had I'd be had a shaky election, shaky first year. Um, the country came together after nine eleven. Uh, he 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 was able to actually win in the midterm elections. Uh, there was yeah. a sense of national purpose of, of national unity. Uh, things, of course, went south with Iraq later with Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, they but, weren't in Iraq but, yet, even. They, they were right, in Iraq right, early right. 2003. I mean, they, they, went, they went later. But I'm saying, but in, 2000, in 2002, you know, the country did have, there was that moment when I think you had that national, that sort of national purpose, national unity that seems like a different era. I just don't know that we could ever get back to that again. This is 19 years you know? ago, right? I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. So now if you start the thought exercise in 2003, it's like, man, I, you know, uh, someone else offered Obama the 2015 year because, you know, you get gay marriage and stuff. But again, he doesn't accomplish anything really that year legislatively. And then Trump comes 2016, right? So it's like, how great could it have been really? Um, I, you know, um, so I, I think that some of this speaks to you know, deeper challenges about like the Internet and the way we consume news and the, and the, you know, the divide in our country. Right. Like, is it possible to have a good presidency, you know, in a post in a well, time when a, you don't have three, you know, news networks with the sort of scrutiny of the day to day Internet stuff? Maybe that, you know, the Internet is a big part of it. The divides, you know, post 9-11. Some of the choices of our leaders obviously have created this. But, I, you know, if you pick a year. And then you I look know, at the hard. previous 20 years, you know, you go from 81 to 2001. And it's like the best year from two, for a president from 2001 to 2021 is like in the bottom five years from 81 <laughs> to 2001. I mean, uh, so, you know, most they have mostly good years. Uh, you know, Bush had a bad year right before he loses and Clinton has a bad year when he got in trouble with his with his, you know, little pickle. And but like a lot of good years for the, for, for the presidents. Obviously, they made some mistakes with the benefit of hindsight and all that. Not saying that those guys were per perfect, but but at the cult the political environment was just so different then um than now and and you know I, well, to they, me i just think that that puts a little bit of a broader context on biden's struggles th this is a very interesting question is is whether you can have a successful presidency anymore and also but what defines a successful presidency again this is one of those things and i was you know thinking about if i had to give a letter grade to joe biden i'm still working on this um you know, do you, do you evaluate a presidency based on the policy issues? I mean, look, I mean, I understand that people will say, look, he, he got, uh, you know, the big stimulus package through, which was a significant legislative accomplishment, the infrastructure bill through, which, you know, on Earth 2.0, the Republicans, the Democrats would be saying, this has really been a good year. Look at this, these trillion dollar pieces of legislation. Job market is good. The economy appears to be good. So there are these measurements, these metrics of presidential success. But then you have the sense yet, then why do people feel so shitty? Why do they not have a sense of optimism? Why do they not think the country is headed in the right direction? Because that's also determines whether or not you feel, you know, can you be a successful president if people are not feeling good about the country right. and, the, and the direction the country is going? So do you and judge the possible? president based on, on, the, on the metrics or the policy, or do you judge him based on the mood? And, and by the way, mood is not, I'm not trying to trivialize it. I'm saying that there this is this is the sort of the heart of the of the Biden failure is that despite these policy some of these policy wins which are considerable which Democrats have decided not to celebrate but the country's 
just doesn't have that sense of hope and optimism that we thought it was going to have this year. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there's this question of is this possible? Are we so divided? Right. That, that, that you can't have a good mood because 40 percent of the country is going to hate you no matter what. I, you know, look, I, it's possible. I think that with the benefit of hindsight, you know, I, I got a lot of answers to that question. 2002 and 2011 were the most popular ones. But uh, 2010 was also a really popular answer, because if you look at 2010, Obama passes Affordable Care Act, passes Dodd-Frank uh, during the lame duck. They pass you know, don't ask, don't tell. So on paper, you know, particularly if you're left of center, you look at that and you say, I mean, we tried 50 years to pass a health care bill. Um, you know, uh, Dodd-Frank was important, you know, post-crash uh, legislation. Uh, obviously, don't ask, don't tell was long overdue. Uh, okay, but that lame duck happens in the context of just getting absolutely annihilated at the polls, yeah. right? And so I think that it's possible you look back at 2021 with a similar view 10 years on, which is like, this COVID relief bill, I don't think people realized how much, you know, it helped buoy the economy and, you know, get us, you know, jumpstart us. Maybe it jumpstarted us a little too hot with inflation temporarily, but, you know, prevent the long recovery that we saw during Obama. You look at the infrastructure and think, man, all this stuff, you know, 10 years from now when you got your new airport built and things like, thank God we did that, <laughs> right? Uh, but but meanwhile, his political standing is dropping the whole time. Uh, and and yeah, maybe that's intractable, right? Uh, or maybe there's, an, maybe there's an answer to it. I, I don't think, you know, you don't want to throw in the towel and say there's nothing he could done. I think there's things Biden could have done better, obviously. Um, this was not a, a thought exercise to get him to A+. Plus. Um, but uh, it, 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 I think it does demonstrate that, you know, there's something about the structure, you know, the gridlock we have in D.C. and and our cultural divide that's making it really hard to have a good year. Yeah. The, you know, happiness is not a fixed thing. It's, it's always your circumstances versus your expectations of your circumstances. Right. So no matter it, it's, you know, I mean, no, no matter how good things are, if you thought that they should be so much better. And as you point out, if there are this, this cacophony of voices constantly tell you things suck, it's right. terrible. You know, and, and that volume is rising because it's, it's not just that people that are telling you that, you know, things could be a lot better or, you know, here's some missed opportunities. It's like your country is going down the tubes. The, the, we, you know, it's apocalypse now all the time. And, uh, there's a certain anxiety. There is a kind of a disconnect because you kind of look around and you go, Hey, you know, my life is actually pretty good. Right. I mean, you know, the sun is out it's maybe a little bit chilly, you know, people are still moving around the country. Most people, you know, have, you know, you know, jobs. And if you, and, and by the way, if you're working at a sucky job, you, you can now, this is a moment where you can quit that sucky job and, and, and get a better one that pays good money and all of these things. And yet, you know, what the voice, the voice in your head is telling you it's the end it's over. Everything is terrible. It's carnage. So and to I don't the point know. about this getting worse. It's not just getting worse in it's also getting worse in the way that we're communicating. And I, cause I, I think that there are a lot of other things here, but I, I think we, I don't think it's coincidence. That the, the internet, you know, the rise of the web has coincided with this and, uh, you know, making it much more challenging to be a president because of just the amount of, you know, information and doom porn that's in people's ears. And I'm telling you, Charlie, like I suck down the devil's playground from time to time over on TikTok. And I I, it's horrible. I mean, like, you know, uh, there is there, you don't you don't come across a lot of TikToks that are, you know, from teens <laughs> talking about how great things are going. You know, it is all doom and gloom, you know, on, from both MAGA teens and, 
you know, more progressive teens about how they aren't doing anything and, you know, et cetera. Uh, so I, I, I just think that there's something about our communications tools that are a big contributor to this that's a little bit, uh, you know, well, hard well, to figure out how you navigate. Um, well, that it, th- yeah, that's that's the problem when people say, what's the solution to it? It's, it, it is not easy. I think a lot of people are are just simply going to withdraw. You're going to, you know, go off into the metaverse and never be heard from again. I mean, maybe maybe that's the 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 you know the end point of Western civilization is we all go into the holodeck and never come out. Uh, but also, well, maybe there's I mean, a backlash not- right against it, and you know we have an era of good feelings coming down the pike. No, I would like to think that. <laughs> but see, this is the other thing: is there's the technology which also could bring on the era of good feelings, but there's so much bad faith out there. The bad faith argumentation, the, the the people who have a vested interest in keeping the outrage, you know, it is an industry that thrives on keeping people afraid and angry. And it's, it's upping the ante. This is why I keep coming back to the the, the drug analysis that, you know, you've, you've got people hooked on the heroin. At a certain point, it's not enough. So you have to have, you know, the meth on the street. And then, you know, the competition between who can give you, you know, the stronger meth. And that's really when you, you think about, you know, Fox News, Newsmax, and OAN, they're competing for sort of the same market, but by, you know, upping the dosage or the potency of the meth that they're peddling on the street. If you're following my analogy, my break, my breaking bad analogy, America breaking bad or the right breaking bad. And so you become addicted to this stuff. Yeah. Then the viewers become addicted to it. Right. Like then it does the, the calming, you know, response. Uh, you know, they turn it off, right? I don't want to watch this anymore. Like my heart rate's not not jacked. You know, um, that's so, right. so, yeah. It's a it's it's not like they're spending too much money. I think they should spend less money. No, it's <laughs> right. communism. Right. You know, or you, you know, Dropboxes are actually a good idea, and there's nothing wrong with them. It's like no, it's Jim Crow 2.0. Mm. They're gonna put you all back in chains. Okay, so. Um, what, what a surprise that we're all on edge one year in. I'm not going to wear the tux on the live stream tonight, though. I just got to tell you. All right. Well, I'm hosting the live stream tonight. And we're going to get everybody else's. I've, I've got a lot of thinkers for people. So come yeah. on, join Bulwark Plus. And um, I get to turn the tables on Charlie and, yeah. you know, make him answer the uncomfortable questions. Plus, there'll be a Nikola Jokic quiz. Will there be pearl clutching? Uh, there might be pearls tonight. I haven't decided. Um, all right. I, I, just I, haven't de- I haven't decided yet. Speaking of pro clutching, I haven't seen Peggy Noonan on on television in a while. So you know, it's like build an entire career out of pearl clutching. I don't hey, think that she's going to give me her pearls. Sadly, I do. I would like uh, you know somebody to bequeath me their pearls, but I, I think my past comments about Peggy probably are cutting me out of the out of the will. I, I think there are probably other candidates out there. Tim Miller, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.